This episode is brought to you by Direct Drilling, a locally owned family drilling company based in Kununurra, servicing the Kimberley and Northern Territory. All drillers are nationally licensed with the Australian Drilling Industry Association, ensuring best practice, the protection of water resources and guaranteeing the life of the bore. Find out more at directdrill.com.au. Central Station Podcast, where we bring you stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one, as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. Campbell Duff came to the Northern Territory thinking he knew it all and was ready to take on the world. Today, he is a completely different person. In this episode, we speak about what prompted him to grow up from an overly confident teenager to a settled young man who has been given the responsibility of being head stockman on one of the Territory's most iconic cattle stations. Duffy, it's the end of the 2021 wet season. So I want to know what you've been watching, reading or listening to to pass by the rainy times. I have been watching a show called Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which was recommended by all the ringers last year. I've also been watching a series called Meat Eater, and I've just started reading his book about the American hunting culture and about how he believes um, all the food wastage they go through with all the animals they kill over there and eat and so that's what I've been um watching and reading. What's that book called for anybody that wants to go chase it up? Uh, it's called Meat Eater by Stephen Rinella. It's uh I think there's like a hundred odd pages and I'm in about ten pages in, so we're off to a good start. So far so good. Yeah, it's uh pretty interesting. Pretty interesting. It sounds like a good yarn, so you know read a couple pages every night. So, we are recording from, I was about to say, we are recording live. I was like, no, this is not live at all. We are recording from Mount Sanford Station tonight, which is a Hatesbury Cattle Co. property in the VRD region, and you are the head stockman. This will be your second year as head stockman at Mount Sanford. I keep forgetting where I am. Uh, The last podcast I recorded, I was like, wait, where am I? (laughs) Um, But tell everyone listening, you know, what is a head stockman and what does your job actually entail? It sounds like a McLeod's daughter sort of skit, but it's far from it. It's um it's a lot of uh people management with my job. It's I think we heard another one the other day. It was ninety five percent people work and about five percent of the ability to work cattle or ride your horses or do whatever in the afternoons, which is about about right. Some days it feels like it's a hundred percent of the men work. Yeah, so my role pretty much entails I've got a camp of six fellows under me, um, generally a couple of first years, 
then a couple of third, like second, third years, they go up the chain, and then it um, comes to me, and I'm the link between, like, the stock camp and my manager. So, you know, if a sale comes in and he comes and lets me know and we go muster a paddock, and I'm the one to go, I go back to him and go, righto, we've got this paddock drafted, and then he goes on to a general manager or his, if he's an assistant manager, goes on to a manager and just says, look, we've got 350 boat steers ready to go. Um, and then they sort of just keep going up the chain until they reach the boss, which is, um, like the owner of the company. And from then on, that's how it goes. And I'm sort of, oh, I guess you could say about fifth or sixth down the line. So is that, I know, I mean, it changes everywhere you go, but it sounds like it's sort of the first step up going, you know, you kind of start off at your, your base level and then it's kind of the first step up in, in progressing through the ranks. Some places have a position called a leading hand. That would kind of, like, and there isn't, you know, but it, it's, it's kind of hit and miss depending where you go. But that's somebody who would be under you. That would kind of be like your assistant in a way. Is that right? Yeah, correct. So leading hand is someone that is close to being a head stockman, but uh, just still needs some brushing up of the skills, maybe paperwork or just working out like a, might be something as basic as that person doesn't feel like they're ready to step up into that position, step up to where I am and deal with what we deal with. So, you know, could be a person has all the skills in the world, just doesn't feel quite comfortable in his position or her position. So, yeah, it goes camp, leading hand, myself, manager, general manager. And so basically, you know, you have a lot of responsibility because as we have learnt through a lot of these episodes, managers have a lot to do. They're not just out mustering in the yards all the time. Often they're not because there's so much behind the scenes and the management of the whole property, the staff, the livestock, the business, there's so much going on. So you're sort of like, yeah, like he's right-hand man that when you're in the yards processing cattle, sometimes the manager will be there, sometimes they won't, but... Basically, they can, you know, if they have to be somewhere else doing something, they know that you're running the show in the, well, whatever's going on, you know, and that you're responsible for that. Yeah, correct. Um, especially like with my manager at the moment, this is what the wet season's all about. He's, he's showing me how he likes stuff done. So we know when we come into that season where we're right to go, he can lead, like rock up to a set of cattle yards and I'll be working cattle the same as the, if he was standing there beside me or he wasn't, and when he leaves, I'll still be working cattle the same way or working my men the same way or even a job as basic as probably pulling a bore or something. He's already shown me how he likes it and then I do it how he likes it. I'd probably add a couple more ideas in, but we bounce off each other and help. Why did you want to become a head stockman rather than staying in the camp? I mean, when you're in the camp, you have a certain level of responsibility and pressure, you know, as as any job does. But when you take that next step up the food chain um, or the career path ladder, uh, you take on a lot more responsibility and pressures. You know, it, it's a harder job. Why did you want to progress? Uh, the, the biggest thing for me was I wanted to prove a lot of people wrong. I um. I, I'm one of these people that I hate, hate seeing someone do something, being like, shit, I could do that, but then I don't go and do it. I, you know, I, I like proving points to myself. And when I first come up, like when when I come to the territory, I was like, ah, oh, I just want to be in the camp. I love drinking beer, love being with the booers on the weekend. You know, riding horses, drinking beer, going to a rodeo, whatever else. But then I realised that someday I have got to grow up and act like an adult and. 
it was a real kick in the pants for me. And then I realised, you know, well, bugger it, why don't, why don't I step up the food chain and see how I go? Like, you know, if you're going to dance, you might as well dance with the devil and have a go. And, um, yeah, so far I'm enjoying it. So that, my biggest driver is, yeah, I want to prove people wrong. So were there people out there that had said, you can't do this, you'll never go beyond the camp? Uh, or was, they just didn't think that you'd grow up? Oh, there was people that think thought I, I wouldn't grow up, thought I'd be the party animal of the group. And and uh, I, probably, I probably am a little bit, but I, I've sort of wised up with cr- what crew I do it with. You know, I'm, I do it away from everyone. And then um, there were some people that thought I just wasn't cut out to be a head stockman. I wasn't wasn't good enough or, you know, there, there was something about me they didn't like and they believed that I wasn't ready to go. And now I can sit back and call that person. And a lot of them I know that they're, they're pretty, like, they're proud of me, I guess. But I go, you know what, we never thought you'd get there and you proved us wrong. And that's the, my biggest drive is I'm going to be like, right, I've beaten you or I haven't beaten you, I've proven you wrong. So I'll go to the next ch- challenge. This will be your second year as head stockman. How long have you been working on stations overall? Uh, stations overall, I've been six and a half years, just a bit over six and a half years. So I started down that uh, Mitchell country, Mount Moffat in the mountains there, um, which is Mount Moffat's in between Injun and Mitchell. Um, backs onto the Carnarvon Ranges, or the Carnarvon Gorge, sorry. Um, started around there and then, yeah, come up and started in the Territory about, oh, it'll be close to five years ago. So, yeah, that's my sort of station life. Seven years on cattle stations is a fairly long time. Well, I say long time, but then I think there's people that spend their whole lives there. But, you know, you've been doing it for a fair while now. What made you want to get into it in the first place? Uh, I grew up on a place... 60k sort of west of Roma on um Stewart's Creek and Koala, a Hereford place. That's all I ever knew. We grew up there. Dad's been looking after the joint for 25, 26 years. So yeah, I'm 25. So he's been there longer than me. And that's always been home. And that's sort of where I come into with the agricultural industry is, you know, working with dad on weekends, going out, mushing cattle, riding horses. And then, yeah, it's just progressed from there really. And then, um, had a few mates at school that had a couple of bigger places and um, sort of went there and figured my life out and, yeah, haven't looked back since, really. I'd, that station work's been the go. So the old fella, he, he thought it would be quite funny to keep taking me to work, to hate it. Or not hate it, but just teach his sons that, you know, go get yourself a trade, live in town, you know, look after yourselves, get a partner. Like, you know, the ag industry's not where it is anymore. And, um, well, I think that's about when we were getting about 50 cents a kilo for Bullock. So he thought there was no money left in it and he, he wanted his sons to go on to be tradies. And, and it's quite ironic. My brother's now a mechanic and he was the one that used to go with me old fella all day, ride the horses every day. And I'd be like, nah, dad, I'm not coming. Bugger this. It's too hot out there. And now, now my brother sits in a shed with grease and gears and I'm the one that runs around after cattle and rides horses all day. So. So your dad used to take you along to work with him, like, you know, weekends, school holidays, whatnot, to try and turn you off wanting to go work in the industry. Talk about backfire. Yeah, it's kind of funny where you still yarn about it now over beer. He's like, all them times that, like, yeah, he just thought the money was gone. He's like, well, I don't want my sons growing up. And he thought looking after ourselves, but 
how she all changed <laughs> real quick for him. You started off working on places near home, but then at some point you took the leap and went pretty far away, popped over to the Territory. What made you want to come out here? Um, yeah, I um, I started to mix with the wrong people, I could say, and I was going down a pretty rough track and my work was suffering and they said, um, I had a boss, he goes, right, that's it. And I was like, right, no worries. And I was like, well, bugger it, I'm going to the Territory. Stuff this, you know, and um, I told Dad that I'm leaving. I said, I'm packing my bags and going to the Territory. And he goes, you know what I always say, son? He's like, a good man never leaves the Territory. So that stuck with me ever since. And I, I literally haven't left. I've gone further into the Territory. I'm nearly in WA. Well, keep going and then you'll get to God's country. Don't worry. Just keep a few more hours west than you'll be there, mate. <laughs> Not far off the border now. Yeah. <laughs> You said there were a few people who thought that you didn't have what it took to become a headstockman or to progress in this industry. Tell me about what, you know, you said you got into a bit of trouble in Queensland or started mixing with the wrong crowd. Tell me about what you were like as a first-year ringer. Why, why did people have uh, these opinions of you? Well, in Queensland, it wasn't too bad because I was playing football, but when I come north, I was the biggest know-it-all you'd ever met. Thought I knew everything under the God's green earth. Thought I could break a ho- any horse in the territory. I was clearly wrong to start with. I could ride any buck jumper and I was wrong there too. Step around any cow, I was wrong there too. So I come here up with, with me big boy boots on and got knocked back a few pegs and now I realised it was probably all for the best. So yeah, that's, <laughs> that's the best way to put it. I come up with, put it this way, I had a very big head and a very small heart to start with. That's um. I was just thinking. I was like, God, I would have hated working with this guy. But don't. But then it's it's you know. I find it interesting that you just said you know a big head and a small heart because when I was doing some background research for this episode, spoke to let me think about three or four people who know you, and the one thing they all said in common, aside from some funny yarns about you and horses, was that you've got the biggest heart. So obviously, there's been a huge growth period in these last you know six and a half years. Tell me about what spurred that on and how you've gone from being this, you know, little um, pot stir- – well, I don't know if you were, but I just imagine you as like a little pot stirring first year, you know, cheeky, like you said, know it all, um, to being the, you know so, – well, you have to have a level of maturity and responsibility and and being grounded enough to have – not only to get this role as a head stockman but to keep it. You know, you're coming into your second year – so, you know, what kind of spurred on that change? Uh, I don't know. I can't really put it down to anything. But um, I guess it was probably when I first come to the Territory, I was like seeing all these leading hands and I was like, you know what, I could be one of them. And I went to the boss one day and I was like, I want to be the leading hand. And he goes, you're not even close to ready. And that was a pretty big hit on the pride. I was like, well, why not? How come he's ready and I'm not? And then sort of went away, you know, as a typical... 19-year-old swearing under my breath and kicking the dirt and wondering why he hated me. And then I sort of realised that he wasn't doing it because he didn't like me. He was doing it because he did like me. He he thought I was bound for better things, as he said, when I, I told him I was leaving the job. He said because he didn't want me to go somewhere where I wasn't ready to go. I was still that young, brash, wanted to drink beer, like tackle cattle, like just sort of personal. Like, 
And um, and I guess I keep looking back on them moments that I've sort of gone to something and been like, oh, I'm ready. And then I've been nowhere near and someone's going, no. And I've gone, oh, well, that's rubbish. You know, go away, kicking the dirt. But then I go and sit over the corner for five minutes and realise, go, okay, they're right. <laughs> that's the best way to explain it. It's quite common these days that, you know, you said you were 19 and you wanted to be leading hand, so that could be, you know, maybe a second year, maybe a third year, depending on when you started in the industry, for people to be moving into leadership roles a lot younger than, I'm going to use, you know, the air quotes here, back in the old days. You know, in the old days, head stockmen would be, you know, could be in their 30s, they'd be with a wife and child or children out on the station and, you know, everything happens so much later in life and now I feel like from a lot of the places I visit and people I talk to is that everybody thinks, well, I've got to do one or two years in the camp, but after that, like, I'm ready I need, I, and I need to be moving up. Like, there's this kind of stigma out there now that if you're just in the camp after three, four, five years, it's like some massive failure and what are you doing? Like, you're either up here for a gap year and you go away back to real life and do something else or you've got to progress and you've got to progress really early. But you were in the camp for five years before you moved into Head Stockman. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's probably for someone like myself, it was probably the best for the best, like going into my second year now, I know a lot more than what I did even 12 months ago when I first, like as a first year Head Stockman. And um, I see it a lot now, like, you know, Fellas I've been in camps with, like, you know, they're, they're 21, starting to run stock camps, like, and they're stressed and they, it just seems like, you know, and it, and this is like, we talk about mental health within the industry. This is a big one, like, pushing young fellas way too, or young women especially as well, like, pushing them way too hard, way too early. Like, you know, some people are ready, yeah, they're good for them. If they're 21 and can do it, excellent, hats off to them. But some people you see, they're not, not like, they're not ready. And they're young and they and they believe they can do it, but they sort of need someone that goes, right, I mate, settle down. We'll have another year and we'll like go again, sort of deal. If you know what I mean. Yeah. Do you think it's sort of like, I suppose in today's day and age, there's this real instant gratification that we have that we didn't have back in the old days. You know, back in the old days, you wanted something and you had to wait for it. You know, whether it was, um, I think Miranda Lambert says in a song, like if you wanted to send somebody a message, you'd write a letter, put a stamp on it and they'd get it three days later. Like where it's today, instant. You can call someone, well, I mean, you could always call someone, but, you know, you can send them a message straight away or like there's so much instant gratification in the things we want and I think that's really kind of seeped into careers and stuff. It's like, well, I've got to be boss now or soon, not now, but sooner. Like I can't wait 20 years to become manager if I'm not there within five or six years. Like what am I doing with my life? That's like, well, my first head someone, for example, um, Justin was his name. I think he's like 28 or something. When he got his first crack at running in camp, and then my next um, head stockman was uh, a bloke called Andrew Ackley. He'd probably be listening to this if I put it on Facebook because he'll probably write something on there <laughs> which will be quite entertaining. Andrew, if you'd like to come on and rebut any of Duffy's claims, um, you're always welcome to come on the show. Yeah, and um, he he was in his 30s, like early 30s, but that was sort of like that's how it was, like, like my dad and my grandfather and that were all in camps and they were like dad was young when he left the camp but my grandfather was in camps for years and he was just a stockman that was that was his job like that my old man tells me stories of him like he never really 
he always wanted to be a head stockman, but there was always fellas that were better or same age as him that that's what they were doing. Like granddad had the kids and that. And so, yeah. Um, and then it was a real, what well, happened to me next, next head stockman was a year older than me. So we went from one area to the next real fast. And how did that one work out? Uh, good. Thomas, if you're listening, you know, <laughs> I love you, <laughs> but, um, we used to fight and argue and it was like, it was good. He taught me a lot of stuff, but yeah, we, we were pretty good at going to battle sometimes. Do you think that this, uh, you know, sort of ageism that we have in this industry and then everyone's desire to progress up the chain so early on is sort of playing into the retention. I mean, there's so many different things that are playing into the recruitment and retention issues that we see right across the pastoral industry. But I just think, you know, if people are like, well, I've got to be leading hand, you know, if I'm third or fourth, you know, if I'm not head stockman by third year, if I'm not manager by fourth or fifth year, you know, what am I doing? Whereas I really would love to change it to say, hey, if you're seventh year, eighth year, and you're still in the camp, like it is a legitimate job. It's not just a gap year. It's, you know, and, um, you know, if you're, if you don't make head stockman until 30 or 35 or whatever, like it's okay. But I just feel like there's just such, I don't know how we've gotten there, but I just feel like so many people think, you know, oh, if I'm, if I'm this age and I'm only doing this job, I don't know if they think other people will look down on them or they're just not doing well enough in life. Yeah. I, I reckon it's just like a, like a perceived time pressure and it comes from everywhere. Like you can't, like, can't nail it down to certain things. I know, like, when you're at school, you get school leaders and it's like the best of the best and you're like, how come they get to sit up there? Like, I was one of them kids, like, why am I not good enough? Because I went for it. And then it's like you get in the workforce and you see a, like, your head stockman or your leading hand runs past you and they're, like, a year older than you and you're like, well, I've been told I'm no good. Or, you know, it's like this perceived time pressure that within three years you've got to be a leading hand. Otherwise, you're just no good. Or in four years you've got to be leading hand, no good, five years head stockman. So that's what I reckon. It's like just a perceived, like a perceived time pressure on it. Yeah. And I mean, if you look at the way the industry is structured or that any industry is structured, you're always going to have, it's, it's kind of like a pyramid. Like you've got most of the jobs on that, on the bottom at the base. And then, and as you go up management chains, it gets smaller and smaller. So I, I, you know, let's say we're talking about hairdressers and you've got all the hairdressers in the salon. You've got your juniors, whatever. But then there's a lot of people that are just, you know, they're happy to be a senior hairdresser, like just a stylist, they don't need to be the salon manager or the assistant manager. Whereas I feel like in this industry, people are like, well, if I'm not getting to that or that, so it's okay to be, I don't want to offend anyone with this, but, you know, just a senior stylist. But if you're just in the camp, it, it's like it's different in agriculture. It's like if you don't get into management, then you need to get out. Yeah, I reckon there's like a bit of a stigma that goes with it, like, you know, like, I'm one of them fellas, don't get me wrong. Oh, well, I was. I've changed my opinion a lot in the last sort of 18 months is like, oh, he's pretty handy, but he's not running a camp. What's wrong with him? Sort of like, you always, there's always that, oh, he's handy, but he's not, like, he must, something mustn't be that good about him. Or, oh, geez, he's been around, running a camp for a while. There's, he must be ordinary, but all it might be is just, he might, like, that person mightn't be good at computer work or, or like it just might be something basic that you and you don't know about, and that's that's the worst part. Even in like the world days, you get 
people that you get judged hard straight up. You don't get a chance for explanations or nothing. You just get just get it put straight on you. People may remember I did an episode with a headstock woman called Tyler Bonish, who is actually your cousin. So being a headstock person runs in the family. I uh, also love that you guys are like headstock people on not neighbouring, but you know, sister properties for the same company in the same region. Um, and one thing that people probably got sick of me saying in that episode was, well, just because you can throw a cradle all day doesn't mean you've got what it takes to be a leader. So I think that's kind of what you were kind of, that was what you, what you were just saying was making me think that is that, you know, it doesn't matter how like you can be really handy or something, but it, the, the skills in the yard don't necessarily translate into leadership skills or, the, or any kind of skills, whether it's welding or pulling a bore or whatever. It doesn't necessarily translate into leadership. Yeah, that's that's correct. Like the camp I got this year, like it's probably one of the best all round like rounded camps that I've seen or been a part of for a long time. You know, I've got the young fella Mitch. You've done an episode with, like unbelievable maintenance man. Like you give him a part and go, I need you to fix that because I need it by like lunchtime, and he will go at it and try his best to get it done by lunch. And then I got another fella in the camp, Ray, unbelievable stock person. You know. Quiet with his cattle, quiet with his horses. Got another fella, Dwayne. He's the same. Got a young girl, Jamie. You did an episode with her earlier on. She's unbelievable with horses, like problem horses, you know. Got another another girl coming as well. She's looks like she's pretty handy with horses and cattle. So it's like everybody brings one little part to the table. Like even my first year that I've got coming up, never. I think he's been on a station for like six months in his life. But rides a motorbike like a crusty demon sort of deal. Like he's not scared of a motorbike, and that's the thing. Like you know, say in five years' time, he mightn't still be much chopper to horsemanship, but he's got just about everything else covered. Like he brings like a motorbike part to me to me camp, and it, like everybody brings out like one little part to the camp, which in turn makes me a better leader, which in turn makes me give back to the camp a lot better. So. They all become leaders within their own rights, within like part of the camp. Everybody's got that little special thing they're, they're good at. So, What did you learn in your first year as a headstock person? I mean, last year was your first time getting to sort of run the show in a sense. I'm sure it was a massive learning curve. Oh, yeah. It was huge for me because um, I come in and I was like, right, how am I going to go about this? And – um. It was all about, like, the people management, like, not, like, I think Tyler touched on it, her, like, in her episode too. She had one girl that was really good at getting the tag guns and everything ready like that, and she'd made her throw the crater, so I, I was the same. I was like, oh, you can all get in and do this, and then realised that I was pushing people into, into stuff they were uncomfortable with, whereas... I could have been using where they were comfortable, but pushing them a little bit more to get the best out of the camp, like putting people where, you know, someone might have liked the backyards a lot more than the round yard, but I'd put them in the round yard because I'd be like, well, no, you got to like the round yard. Whereas I could have been like, well, if I had you out the back, I could have drafted, you know, a couple of hundred more cows for the day, sort of. That's probably what I picked up is just my people management for myself. That was a big, big, big thing and just dealing with um with not the stress but just the workload of what I was going like being a first year head stockman thinking oh geez I've got to do all this but 
being like, well, I've got tomorrow. You've always got tomorrow. That's the biggest thing that I've learnt. It must be quite a balancing act, just going back to what you were saying, you know, not wanting to push somebody into something they're not comfortable with or that they don't want to do, but then also at the same time, like essentially you're there to nurture and mentor them to enhance the skills they've already got and the things they're comfortable in, but try and build them and develop them in other areas that they don't have that confidence. So that must be quite difficult to, you know, be like, well, yeah, you're not happy in the round yard, so we're going to let you shine in the backyards, but then it's also your job to sort of build their confidence in the round yard and just know when, you know, because you don't want to, you know, push it too far and, you know, you know, when you can, with a horse, you know, if you push a horse too much, you can just cook it and it's, you know, gone, you know, when they um like lock up or whatever. So, yeah, that must be, do you, do you, do you, find, do you find actually, now this is a question coming to my mind, do you find any similarities between like managing people and breaking in horses, like kind of learning how, like finding your limits with people and what you can do? Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's all about judging the situation, you know. There's no point putting someone who doesn't like the round yard in with, you know, you've got to draft 1,500 cows and, and you know, there's going to be a couple of snotty ones in them. Like, there's no point putting someone who's not comfortable in the round, in the round yard. Be like, right, oh, you stay in the backyard until, like, the last, you know, maybe 100 or whatever or, like, the first 100 for the day when it's cool when everything goes pretty smooth as it always does until about lunchtime. But or, or like uh, going when your wieners, when you're drafting, just um, like your mickeys and heifers for your wieners, like having it nice and steady, that person in the round yard, and you can explain where they should be standing, especially with your wieners because, you know, you're being quiet with them. And it's much like a horse. Like I'm not going to take a breaker and go and chase a scrub bull, for example, or go and try and pull down a cow or something. Or like I'm going to take them out around me wieners first. So the wieners are getting broken in, but my horse is getting used to the cattle used to me, like, whereas I, if I was going to do something a bit hectic, like, we're going to go block up a thousand head, I'd take one of the good horses, like, one of them older horses that know what the go is, and it's very similar to working people in the yards and and just in jobs in general, really. What do you think you'll do different this year to last year as you come into your second year as a head stockman? Yeah, just being more aware of where I can push someone for a happy medium to – not pushing too far, but not pushing enough, so they fulfil what like because in this job you can see everybody's potential and you know what they can be, and it's always about putting someone to the to the best, like making someone to the best of their ability is pretty much, and like setting them up because you know we get the young fellas out of school who been living with mum and dad all their life and don't know how to fill their water bottle or cut their lunch or. The biggest one I see on stations is how to use a mop. Oh, really? Yes, that has. So, my partner Tash, actually, her first year at Brunette, the boys went and seen her and said, how do you use the mop? Or, And then they asked how to use the washing machine in about two days. So, it's about helping. helping. I know it's pretty funny yarns, but like helping them fellas like fulfill where they could be like, Helping them get away from everything and be independent young people. It's it's fairly similar to what you were saying at the start of this episode about how when you wanted to progress and people were saying no to you. Like it's that same kind of looking out for somebody and guiding them, whether it's helping them 
um, you know, either supporting them to to do something and saying, yes, you can do this or saying, no, you're not ready for that. It's really the same thing. Like whether you're teaching them how to use a mop or a washing machine, I feel like I should acknowledge that I didn't know how to use a washing machine until I moved away to uni um, at Gatton at like the age of 20. So anyway, <laughs> guilty as charged. Um but, yeah, whether you're doing that or, you know, you're having to tell them, no, you're not ready to move up to this year, it's kind of the same, just there to nurture and guide them, I suppose. Yeah, and it's all about, like, the respect that you get from your people. Like, you know, like, oh, I won't do a job unless, like, I won't get my camp do a job unless I'll do it. Like, cleaning septics, like, I'll get in there and clean it with them. Like, if they're going to do it, I'll be in there with them, like, Sort of deal, you know. It's it's about earning the respect because once you got that respect, and you can be to someone like, I don't think you're ready. I, I don't. I don't want to see you cook yourself or blow yourself up too much over over something. What's the end goal for you? Do you want to keep going in this industry until you become a station manager, or you know, these days, depending on whether you're with a family or um, company place you know, or the, the myriad of different business models in between, you know, you could be there's station manager, there's regional managers, general managers, people in head offices, you know, there's so many steps up the chain depending on where you want to go. What would you like to do? Oh, well, I think everybody's end goal that when you become a head stockman, you want to be a regional manager or a general manager. Like if it happens in 20 years, it happens in 20 years. Like that's the that's it, eh? Like oh, I wouldn't mind... Being a manager, you know, that might take me five years to get there. A couple more stations within, within the company to go to and see, see about and learn different skills. And, um, but yeah, the end goal, it doesn't matter how long it takes, like get to that regional manager or general manager or something like that. So that, that is the next question I want to ask you. Going back to the, what we were chatting about, how everybody wants to progress so soon. So you're 25 and this is your seventh year in the industry. Now, at the end of the day, as, as we said just before, like if you think of industry as like a pyramid, the, the higher up you go in the, in the career chain or career pathways, the less positions there are available. So ideally in my, in my, um, fantasy world, I'd love, you know, managers to stick around for 20, 30 years just from a landscape perspective, like having the same consistency of managing a landscape, well, assuming they're good managers. But so, say we're in an industry that has really good retention, and, and I think there are certainly, I know Hatesbury has good uh, retention, NAPCO has had quite a few managers for 20, 30 years. Um, so, say these people are holding on to their jobs until they fall off the perch or get put in a nursing home, or maybe, maybe not that extreme, but you know, they're going to hold on for a while. And you don't get a chance to move up from head stockman for another 10, 15 years. Now, as you said, not that long ago, it was quite normal to have a 35-year-old head stockman. Not a drama. But these days, we've got 24-year-old managers. So, how would you feel about hanging on to the role of head stockman for another 10 years? I mean, I obviously, I think from what we've been chatting about, like we know it's not an issue, but just that, you know, the judgment from outside. Yeah, like. Ten years a bit of a stretch, like I'd I'd look at going elsewhere but always look back within, you know, because I think it's one of them things, you know, if you stay loyal to a place, they're always going to look after you. So, you know, it might be six years till I get something, 
but at least that company, like, at least they know that I'm going to be there. I'm not, I don't want to turn away and, nah, it's got all too hard for me. I can't get the job. I might as well piss off. Like, you know, and everything happens. My biggest belief is everything happens for a reason. If you don't get it straight away, it's always going to be tomorrow. That's the best way to look at it, you know. You just keep striving to get better and better, and then once you get that phone call saying, oh, look, you got the job, you know, be like, right, I'm ready to go. Like, and shit, like, yeah, that's my biggest thing is, you know, it might happen, it might happen tomorrow, but it, I'm not saying it will, and it probably won't, but, and it, or it might happen in six, seven years' time, but, you know, you just got to work at what you're good at and keep working until you get there, really. What's your advice for people listening who maybe, just want to work in the camp and they're not particularly interested in progressing and, you know, maybe feeling some of that ageism, that stigma, you know, I feel like it doesn't really apply to cooks, bore runners, greater drivers, like they can be any age and it's totally accepted, you know, it doesn't matter if you're 35 and you're a cook or a bore runner, like that's fine. But if you're 35 and in the camp, it's like, ooh, like you should be 18, you should be on your gap year. So, I, that's something that's like my mission that I really want to change is make it normalize it and, and make sure that, you know, I'd love to see more older people in camps. I'd like to see older camps. So what would you say to someone who, you know, might be feeling the pressure to that, you know, if they're, that they, they've been doing it for five, six, seven years and they have to move up? I, I reckon it's awesome that if people just want to be that older head in the camp, you know, that, that head stockman mightn't always be a bit older, might be a 22 year old that, and you could always be that level head like that. It's always nice to have an older head in the camp. Like I, I know, speaking from experience, like this is a bit of a stretch, but I've got me old grader driver, old Bruce, he, he's a good old stick. He's, he's just turned 60 and he still comes out the yard with us. And it's always good having him out there because I can see something goes wrong and I'll go, Oh God, what's going on? He goes, Oh well, we better go get the chain or something. Like, you know, he's always like, right, oh, no. he always sees a solution. That's where, like, I think that ageism is a load of rubbish because it's always good to have that older level head in the camp than, you know, big mob of young fellas thinking they're strong as an ox because it doesn't happen like that. You get, <laughs> you get hurt pretty quick doing that stuff. So it's always, yeah, always nice to have someone that can be like, oh, hang on a minute. Why don't we have a look at this idea? Like, might seem like a bit of a ridiculous idea, but it could work. Yeah, absolutely. No, I just loved, you know, and if anybody out there is listening, you know, we, we often put out there like, it's never too late to come up and experience the North and come work, you know, but I think a lot of the time it's like, oh, I just came up for a year or a season, you know, I was having a midlife crisis at 30 and went to work in a stock camp. But if you want to be 30, 35, 40, and that is your job is a livestock hand working in a camp, like, if you were 40 and working in a feedlot as a pen rider, like there's no dramas there. So why is it such an issue that you're just a station hand? Anyway, that's just my rant for the night. I've got to have at least one rant every podcast. Everybody who's listening knows this. They're like, oh gosh. Anyway, <laughs> I want to get into some yarns now. Obviously people can't see us, but Duffy just looks like I've shot him. Um, <laughs> I did get some, uh, <laughs> Duffy did get some inside goss from other people, but I'm going to be kind and let you direct where this next part of the episode goes and you tell some yarns rather than me drop you in the deep end. But I suppose, you know, let's start off with some uh, some challenging yarns, you know. What are some of the challenges you've had in this industry, Duffy? 
or all this time working? Uh, oh, that's an easy one to start with, actually. <laughs> it's a lot better than where I thought it was going for a second. But um, uh, one of the biggest challenges is dealing with, like, the biggest one I find is dealing with, like, the family is, you know, my little brother had a had a little girl the other day and I can't get home to see her or I can't, like, I couldn't get home for Christmas because I was up here looking after it. And that's that's a major challenge, I know. Like, I, I play it off. Like, nah, I'm right. She's right. I'll see him whenever they come up or whenever I go home. But I know within myself, I was just like, oh, geez, I'd, I'd love to get home and have a beer with the whole fella sort of deal or I'd love to go home and see... My little brother's kid, you know, just stuff like that. But um, probably the biggest one just outside of work is, like, I think uh, I read that article Munro Hardy wrote about micro and macro isolation where, you know, I lived at Burnett Downs. So it was, like, one of the biggest stock camps, biggest working stations I've ever been on in my life, and there's, like, 74 people there, and you feel, sometimes you feel all alone. Like, it's, yeah. Like sometimes you can feel isolated when you're here in the uncomfortable situations you get in, but um, but yeah, that's sort of my ones is just like family or the just feeling isolated within a big environment. You know, I don't. No, I wish that if my camp had a problem, they'd come see me. But you know, sometimes it just doesn't work like that. What are the best things about being up here in this industry, in this part of the world, and in this job? Where else can you catch a meter barrel? That's okay, I don't even like fishing, so that doesn't fly. I want a better answer. <laughs> nah, it's like, it's definitely the culture of up here. Like, I think we were talking today when you come out and we're doing them few jobs. Is It's funny, like, that territory culture, it's hold laid back, have a beer, a laugh. You know, you meet some people, like, did you meet them 12 hours ago and all of a sudden they're sitting at your camp at a camp draft sinking beers and you yarn about someone you know that, you know, they went to school with but you worked with. So it's like, well, it's all about the people you meet and the culture and like there's nothing too serious goes on. Um, one of the best experiences is actually I won a camp draft. First ever camp draft I won was in the Northern Territory. So that'll stick with me for a long time. And it was on probably one of the worst horses I ever rode. <laughs> he was a good old playing horse, but he wasn't much of a cutter. <laughs> he was pretty steady. He's like me, a bit slow around the yard. But um, there's that, like, you know, you get to ride some pretty unbel- – like for myself, who's a pretty big horse nut, you get to ride some unbelievable horses, especially – that's one thing within the Hightsbury, like, you know, they spend the money on the horses, like they go to Dalby and – buy them horses and, you know, I here at Mount Sanford, I could go to a camp draft with like 18 horses and be competitive on every single one of them, you know. And even same, like at Brunette, we had a couple of mares there that were unbelievably competitive in the camp draft ring. Or Eva was the same, like all them places I've worked, I've always had them two or three horses that are like, you know, for and for myself who lives and breathes horses, that's a pretty big thing. Like That's... um. That's another pretty good experience. And um, probably the biggest thing I find is the mateship is one of the biggest things up here. Like I'm close with fellas I've worked with for like six months than I went to school with for 12 years. That's the be- the biggest way to put it. Like, you know, I've got fellas 
that ring me on weekends, see what I'm up to, and I might have only worked for them for three months. So it's all that whole, you know, looking out for your mate sort of deal as well. All right. So we've covered some of the most challenging times or the most, you know, the biggest challenges and then the best things. But now, now you're starting to sweat. I want to know the funniest times. And this is the part where your yarns are going to come out. Whether we know they don't have to just be about you. You can feel free to throw some other people under the bus. Um, you've told me a few funny yarns about most people in the camp up here, but let's talk about some of your funniest experiences to start with. Yeah, oh, I knew this was coming, but, uh, so there's one day I was at work with a, uh, I think I penned up by myself. Nobody was helping me in the backyard and I penned up a moppy cattle by myself and it was all good. And I was walking back through the yard, day banging along and there was a big blow of snot behind me. And, well, I climbed the rail pretty quickly and, uh, went over the rail. And as we all know, the fellas up here do not wear jocks and, uh, the credentials fell between the rail and the cow's head. So you can imagine it was a, I couldn't walk for about half an hour, I reckon. I think I crawled back to the boys to get a Panadol because I was um I was actually crying, and I will admit I was crying. And I think I was laid in bed for the next three days with the uh yeah. So there wasn't a, that 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 there is pretty pretty out there, pretty funny, I believe. I don't really know what else. So I um am I bore runner? He um he enjoys getting bogged, thoroughly getting bogged, and uh. We call him Bogged One, actually, on the two-way from day to day. I think it's we're up to about 18 times for the year. 18 times for the current wet season of getting bogged. Yeah, yeah. That's a lot of cards. We're drinking free for a long time at this place. All right. Let's just have one more, and then I'll let you off the hook. Uh, so, I was at another place I was working. I, um, I thought I was a pretty deadly stepper of uh, mad cows, and... um. We had one cow in the backyard, I still remember it, and the boys were standing there, they're like, right, I go for it. I went for it. And uh, I stood around her a couple of times, and as I went to take off, and as a lot of people that know me, I'm not the fastest human being in Australia, and uh, she stood on the back of my shoe, and um, let's put it this way, I didn't fall gracefully. I, um, she stood on the back of my shoe, and I couldn't go anywhere, and she smoked me between the back, and uh Drove me into the biggest puddle in the yard where the trough had been leaking, so I had to run around the yard for the next six hours and just covered in shit. Oh, thank you for sharing those. I appreciate it, and I'm sure our listeners do too. Everyone's got to have a laugh at some point. We talked about some pretty, not not intense stuff, but some very deep stuff, so I like to think of it as a palate cleanser. We're just bringing it back. But now we are going to jump back into some more uh, thoughtful conversation because before we wrap this up, I want to talk to you a bit about the culture of hate spree, um, which is something that we just the, – the conversation naturally progressed to that today as we were out driving around the station. Um, I realised as I said that, I'm like, oh, it's going to sound like we're being put up to say this, but we're not. It's um, I think because I've done the podcast with you and with Mitch and then my other friends work for hate spree. I, I know a few people work for hate spree. Like, I, it just seems something that comes up. A fair bit. Um, and I'm sure, I know there's other places that have great culture, but I just want to, you know, you've had experiences working for a, a number of different companies and kind of operations and different people. And you said there's, you know, you've really found it di- quite different here. So tell me a bit about that. Yeah, just with High Tree, like being, I was like, it's still a pretty, pretty large company, but it's, it feels like it's one of the smaller ones because we know everyone within the stations. Like, 
when, when we go somewhere, like, especially to a campground, you know, like when I was over on the Barclay, like, you know, we all got along there pretty well, but over here, it's, it just seems like, you know, we go somewhere and, and everybody sort of gets along, like everybody's at each other's camps and, and I, and I enjoy that. Like, I'm a pretty social person. I'll go to anybody's camp if I know them and pull up, have a beer, but, you know, I've got fellas like Mitch, he's pretty shy, so, but he knows people at VRD, so he goes over and has a beer with VRD and, and then they know people that are working at Pigeonhole, so he goes to Pigeonhole and that's, I reckon, how we, we, you just get to know everyone and it feels like a pretty big family, like, um, probably helps me cousin runs one of the camps, which is pretty good and, but, um, you know, like, every, everybody gets along like, ah, uh, the head stockman at Pigeonhole, Yatey. I worked with him within AA, so I know him fairly well and his camp knows me, so we all we all know each other and we all get along and it's all like it is is a pretty good company to work for. Like um they're putting a new uh senior staff quarters in here at Mount Sanford for uh Brucey, our grader driver, Mark our cook and if we um if we get like a uh like a older stock hand or or something, or maybe a guest room is, you know, managers come out with the piece of paper and put it on the table in front of everyone and said, oh, what, what do you reckon? Do you, like, you know, everybody had that little bit of input and, and that's what it feels like. You can go and talk to anyone, like my managers, I can go talk to them about anything. Or, um, as Tyler touched with Rusty, like she said, she could go talk to him about anything and I'm the same. Like, I, I know he's only a, like a phone call away. I can ring him up and be like, oh, g'day mate, how you going? And, and, um, like over the wet when I was here by myself, like he was always messaging me, making sure I was okay and everything was okay here. So it was, yeah, yeah, it definitely helps when, you know, someone that has a lot more on his plate than just a head stockman looking after a station and he takes the time out of his day to give you a call or send you a text or something like that. Yeah. It, it seems to be the, the common theme is that while it is a big company, you know, plenty of staff, plenty of country, plenty of cattle. It is a really good company culture and a really small. I feel like I'm just doing a recruitment like advert for Hayes. Yeah, come work for Hydebury. Yeah, well, this is okay. So this uh, episode I did with Becky Klingenberg because uh, she years ago worked at VRD, and we were like, "Is it Hatesbury or Hightsbury?" And then I've heard other people say Hatesbury, so I was like, "Okay, okay, it's Hatesbury." But you're saying Hightsbury, and now I'm confused again. There's about six different ways to pronounce it, I reckon. <laughs> it's um, I feel like I need to ring the big boss man and be like, "Excuse me, sir, how do I pronounce your company name?" Oh well, I just go on off the way it's spelt. That's how I pronounce yeah, it. Yeah. I, anyway, so I thought we I thought we'd settle this, but the the question comes up again. So hopefully somebody listens to this and they'll let me know. <laughs> if not, it's going to be the 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 age old. Is it Nikon or Nikon? Is it Nike or Nike? And I'm like, is it Hatesbury or Hatesbury? I just don't know. Anyway, um, yeah, I feel like I'm doing a bit of a recruitment ad for them, but uh, you know, I'm just, I'm actually just, uh, reiterating my observations and my experiences talking to staff. So anyway, if any other pastoral companies are listening and you want to get some airtime, uh, feel free to send your staff to me for a podcast. <laughs> but, uh, we'll, we'll start to wrap up now. I want to ask you, how you look after yourself and perhaps also how that's changed from, you know, you said you've gone through quite a fair bit of personal growth in your time in this industry from being that young kind of know-it-all, you know, sass, sassy pants to who you are now. 
how did you, if you did look after yourself then, and how does that compare to now? Um, no, oh, back then it was sort of just get on the beers. That was pretty much it. Have a few smokes at the pub, uh, go to the pub, uh, few beers. That was about it. Whereas now, like, I'll go and ride my horse or, you know, I'll, I'll go and work on my car or something like just, it mightn't seem like a lot, but it's just like that five minutes of me doing something different, getting away from everyone. Cause that's the biggest thing is, is getting your own time to yourself. Cause when you don't get your own time to yourself, that's when like, I think COVID put a big pressure on everyone. Cause we all lived in each other's back pockets here. And you know, if we're going to go ride the horse, everybody wanted to ride the horse or, and like it, it wasn't that bad. Like I got to help fellas with riding their horse, but at the same time, it was, yeah. that was going to be my five minutes to just go up there. Even if I didn't ride them, just catching them and sitting there. And and uh, the other one is sounds a bit weird, but cooking. <laughs> Not weird at all. That's <laughs> awesome. Well, smoking, smoking, and making jerky—that's my biggest thing. Is if people are listening, they do know that uh, I make a fair bit of jerky for chopper pilots. But uh, like. Uh, smoking food and stuff like that, just like I, I like seeing people happy. If I've made it and they're happy, well, I'm happy sort of deal. So that's how I get through it all. Brilliant. And to finish up, looking back at your experience so far, what have you learnt along the way? Not to know it all. <laughs> that's the biggest one <laughs> I find is not to come up. If anybody is thinking about coming up, is not to come up and be like, my dad showed me how to ride a horse. I know how to ride a horse because I did that and I got throwing off some pretty good horses. And um, and then I tried to prove it in the rodeo arena and I ended up breaking wrists and arms and <laughs> stuff like that. But, um, yeah, just uh, like acting like I knew it all and actually knowing nothing. It's my biggest thing, you know, I come off a place with 2,000 head of cattle, 24,000 acres, Herefords that walk about 3K and are ready to keel over. Whereas I come up to the territory and you're dealing with mobs of about three and a half thousand three and a half thousand head and about thirty K walk, you're like, Well, oh, geez, this is a bit ordinary. <laughs> when smoker coming sort of deal. That's the biggest thing, is just yeah, thinking that you've got it all and you actually know a very small percent. Even now, like I'd hate to know the number of cattle I've drafted or mustered or whatever else, but the small percentage of stuff I know what and then and anything else I can, like, give on is, like, always have an open ear, like, always be like, you know, someone might tell you something, you might have heard it 30 times, but they could put it in a whole lot simpler way that you'd understand it. And that's the biggest thing is, oh, people trying to tell me stuff that my old man told me, and I'm like, oh, dad's already told me that, I don't even know it, and I'd walk away, whereas now I'm like, oh, yeah, well, you show me how you do it, and we'll try and work something out, and... But yeah, they're the, probably the biggest things I've taken out of being up here now is, yeah, always willing to learn, listen, learn, or get called while watch and learn. Charles Darwin University's Agricultural and Rural Operations team focuses on North Australian production and business systems, offering current real-world knowledge and experience by delivering both full qualifications and industry-required short courses. Courses at the rural campus are designed to develop the skills required for work on a North Australian beef cattle property or in the top-end agricultural industry, while providing a sound knowledge base in the pastoral and or agricultural industries. 
They have dedicated staff who specialise in workplace training and assessment and recognition of prior learning. They will come to you and they service some of the most remote areas in the Northern Territory. Find out more at cdu.edu.au. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or leave us a review. It really helps other people find our podcast. You can find our website at centralstation.net.au where we have over 1,200 stories published from across Northern Australia. All of our podcast episodes, a tourism directory for visiting an outback cattle station and training and employment resources. We're on Facebook at Central Station True Stories from Outback Australian Cattle Stations and we're on Instagram at centralstation.net.au and we're also on Twitter at centralstation6. To discuss this episode with other listeners, head on over to our Facebook group, Central Station Podcast.